Well, you can turn in your hymn book, or your hymn books. You can turn in your confessions to chapter 8, as we now have arrived at the doctrine of Christ the Mediator. And a fitting time of the year, we're not bound by any liturgical calendar, but as the world seems in some measure to be drawn to a consideration of Christ during this time, it's a good timing that we've landed upon the doctrine, the topic, the title, and the chapter of Christ the Mediator. And so we're going to start this morning with, um, with an, introduction, uh, an, introduction, uh, an introduction to the doctrine. I'm mixing words this morning. An introduction to the doctrine of Christ. We'll spend, uh, I think the, the topic is certainly worthy of more than one uh, Lord's Day morning, especially given the topic, but also given the, the, uh, the length of the chapter and, and what's contained in these uh, in these 10 paragraphs. So this will be a, an introduction to the doctrine of Christ this morning. From the confession, I'm simply going to read the first two paragraphs as we get into a study of, of Christ this morning. So the first two paragraphs. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures." so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. So, before getting to the content of the confession, and specifically, uh, largely and specifically, the, the content, the uh, uh, the particulars, the various articles and doctrines concerning the person and work of Christ. We're just going to introduce the, the study of Christ, some important things to consider, and some ground and foundation for our minds as we seek uh, illumination and enlightenment as we work through the doctrine of our Savior. So um, there is a link in the title of the chapter to chapter 7, uh, of God's covenant. Notice the title of this chapter is of Christ the mediator. He is the mediator of the new covenant, the mediator of the covenant of grace. And so moving from the chapter on the covenant of grace now into the doctrine of Christ, it's a fitting title for the chapter. He is the champion of the covenant, the mediator of the covenant. So this is a study of Christ the mediator. And we're going to be using a, a lot of a lot of uh, you know, big words and phrases, and we'll define them as we move along, but we, we need to understand, and we'll note this in a number of minutes, that that's important to do um, as we seek precision 
as we seek clarity and as we seek to lay hold of the truth and push away and jettison error on the point of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. But these sessions won't be about big phrases and about big words, but about the riches and excellencies of Jesus Christ. Leontius of Byzantium, <laughs> on this point, as if we were interested in fitting ourselves out with verbal beauty rather than gazing on the truly golden face of truth, than which nothing is lovelier, even if there is no elegance or brilliance of style involved. For truth needs no further ornament for its decoration, but is splendid with natural beauty and has no need of deceptive transformation of language like cosmetic powers. He's talking about the intrinsic glory of truth. And as we study the Lord Jesus Christ, there is intrinsic to the topic and intrinsic to the one who is the object of our study, there is um, blessed truth and blessed beauty in the study of Christ our Savior. One text we're going to read as a launching pad for our study in the Lord Jesus Christ is in Philippians 2, and, and you can turn there. No doubt you know which passage we're going to, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. This is a passage replete with the glory of Jesus Christ. It doesn't simply present one aspect or one truth concerning Jesus Christ, but actually is, in essence, a summary of the whole point of the Bible. And that point of the Bible being the glory of God through the salvation of the elect by the champion and captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. So notice in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." What a, what a beautiful summary of Bible and gospel truth there. We have in this passage the essential deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is very God, as the, the confession says. We have this passage setting forth his equality, the Son's equality with the Father. He is not eternally subordinate to the Father. There is no measure of obedience that is inherent to, to being the Son of God, but rather he is equal with his Father. He has true humanity, the passage sets forth. His work um, in obedience unto death, his exaltation, which assumes his resurrection, and then the praise and glory that is due Christ. And so we have uh, this passage replete with the person and the work of Christ, which is the study of Christology, properly speaking. So that's a word there, Christology. What, what is it in short? It just simply means the, the study of the doctrine of Christ. The, the study of the, or the doctrine of Christ. We know different ologies. Uh, we, biology is the study of life. Uh, anthropology is the study of man. Christology then is the blessed study of that blessed subject of study, Christ. Um, and we want to note the necessary posture. So this is, this is we're working in, one, an introduction, an introduction to Christology, and then two, the importance of Christology. So um, 
The necessary posture in studying Christ, and we noted that, well, this should be our posture when studying the Bible, but certainly when we come to the the topic of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to have a measure of joy-filled humility as we approach so glorious a topic. It's not the base study of a thing. It's not like biology where we're sort of cold and detached and looking through microscopes at at an object of study. Um, It shouldn't be cold and detached. You know, we don't come with beakers and microscopes to a study of Christ, but we come as Christians. We come as Christians saved by grace through faith in this Christ, and we come with the weight of glorying in the triune God and so blessed a Christ who saved us by the perfection of his work. Um, Spurgeon on this particular topic He writes, Indeed, we have before us a subject as inexhaustible as the river of God and as bright as the sapphire throne. If we should endeavor to show how precious the well-beloved is in all respects, we would need eternity in which to complete the task. And so our posture should be one of a a joy-filled Christian heart that approaches the God of heaven and earth, that God... Uh, in the Son of God who assumed our humanity for our redemption. It's a a blessed topic, and so we ought to have a a posture of joy-filled humility. Christology elaborated, so it's the doctrine and study of Christ. We would elaborate and want to say that it's the study of the person and the work of Christ. To paraphrase John Owen, the dignity of his person and the virtue of his office. So the dignity of his person, who he is, and the virtue of his office, what he did and what he does. Because his work hasn't stopped, he ever lives to intercede for his people at the right hand of the Father. And so it's a study of the person and the work of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it isn't then to be left aside, and it's not to be consigned to just occasional consideration. The, the blessed topic of Christ is one that we visit every Lord's Day. We're Protestants. We don't adhere to a liturgical calendar. Um, we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, His blessed incarnation, His person, His incarnation, His life, death, resurrection, and exaltation in current session, and we proclaim that regularly. We proclaim that frequently. We come to Christ every Lord's Day, and we observe and we glory in the blessed person and the blessed work. It is, of course, Christ, the, the namesake of our high and holy religion. We are Christians. It's a wonderful word to identify as. We're Christians. We are of Christ. We are of the blessed Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And on this point of the doctrine of Christ, there is one question that is the most important question that's ever been asked. And that is the question that the Savior asked his disciples, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? That's the most important question ever asked. And the answer is of the utmost importance for Christians. Who is this Christ? Which Christ are we confessing? Which Christ are we worshiping? Are we worshiping a low Christ brought down from the throne of heaven and 
and lowered to the point of simply a creature that exercised some measure of salvation in this lower world? Or are we worshiping with that high Christology that he is essential deity, that he is equal with the Father, that he owes no obedience except in the taking on of humanity, he rendered obedience in the stead of the elect, in the stead of guilty sinners. We are to have a a high Christology and answering the question, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And as we work through this study, we will be uh, engaging in the answering of that question. So what we're going to do is we're simply starting with this introduction this morning, and then we'll work through the content of the confession as we, uh, as we study the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to note, before moving to the importance of Christology, some important interpretive rules in Christology. So in the doctrine of Christ, in studying the Lord Jesus Christ, what are some important interpretive rules as we approach the study? Well, first off, truths contained in Holy Scripture are either one, expressly set down, or two, necessarily contained. We, we looked at that, Jim looked at that in, uh, in the study of chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures, the interpretive rule in paragraph 6. We have those things that are expressly set down in the Scriptures, and then we have those, those things that are, uh, that are logically implied or that we logically gain a recognition and a, um, and a study of by virtue of examining those things that are expressly set down. A biblical example is the Lord Jesus Christ in, Ma in Luke 24. Um, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then the disciples later on, um, as he's eating broiled fish and honeycomb, were supposed to know from the Old Testament scriptures that there is a Christ that he was to come in the world to be born of Bethlehem, that he would die, that he would rise again, uh, and that he would be exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, the Old Testament, while it is replete with Christ, it doesn't have the exact specificity as the New Testament, which opens up what the Old had concealed. And so the Lord Jesus Christ engages in a uh, an exercise of what's necessarily contained by virtue of a study of the Old Testament. And this, these two things, and more importantly, the second one, those things that are, of, that are necessarily contained or deduced from the Scriptures, is very important for Protestant and Reformed theology. And we'll see that as we move along, because there is a modern, and there always has been, a historical rejection of that. Arius in the 4th century, rejected this idea. He didn't have the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy, and the uh, Second London, but Athanasius and the heroes of Nicene Christology employed this aspect of interpretation in order to combat the Arians. The, the Eunomians after that, who were basically Arians just worse, um, the, uh, the Cappadocian fathers and others opposed them with this same interpretive rule that there are truths expressly set down and there are those truths that are necessarily contained. Secondly, we are not to attend nakedness of words, but to attend fullness of meaning. And for what we mean by that, this is, this is uh, Jerome. In dealing with the scriptures, it is the sense we have to look to and not the words. And let them not flatter themselves if they think they have Scripture authority for their assertions, since the devil himself quoted Scripture, 
And the essence of the Scriptures is not the letter, but the meaning. And as we move through, we'll, we'll look at that. Obviously, we subscribe to sola scriptura and the primacy of the Bible as that ground of, of knowledge that discloses salvation by Jesus Christ and is true and perfect in everything it asserts. But when we, if we just look to the nakedness of words, there are a multitude of heretics who use the Bible and the nakedness and bareness of the words in order to assert heresy. So it's the sense of the scriptures, the meaning of those words that we are after, and not simply the bare, wooden, literal nakedness of the words. Um, uh, Thirdly, clearer passages are to be searched to answer questions about the true and proper sense of the less clear. So our, our... Our confession says when there's a question about the the clear and the true and the proper sense of a biblical passage, we're to search out other passages in the scriptures that have a greater measure of clarity on that same topic that will help us with that in order to answer those questions. And so that's important with the study of any topic, certainly then with the study of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to the more clear passages to help us with the less clear. Fourthly, the unchanging divine perfections and therefore the unchanging divine perfections of the Son. Chapter 2 is absolutely vital for our understanding of chapter 8. In chapter 2, we have the doctrine of God. And in chapter 2, paragraph 1, and we can include paragraph 2, we have the perfections, the divine perfections set out for us. Uh, that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of His glorious perfections. He is most loving, most absolute, most gracious, most holy. He is uh, immutable. He is a most pure spirit without body parts and passions. And then in paragraph 3, we have the Trinity set forth where it says, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, or persons, the Father, the Son, or Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are of one substance, one power, and one eternity, each having the whole divine essence and the essence undivided. So that says something about the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? So we are to have this understanding of the unchanging divine perfections in mind, and specifically at the topic of the second person of the Trinity, which we're starting to study, uh, who we're starting to study now, the unchanging, therefore, divine perfections of the Son of God. The, the Son and the Spirit are equal to the Father in all things. The Son and the Spirit are identical to the Father with the exception of not being unbegotten. The Son, uh, the Spirit is identical to the Son with the exception of not being eternally begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are uh, all perfect in the divine perfections, each having the whole divine essence undivided. Fourthly, excuse me, fifthly, the recognition of the union of the two natures, divine and human, in the one Christ. This is a vital an absolutely vital interpretive rule or undergirding principle as we study Christ. We need to understand that there is a union of the two natures, divine and human, in the one Christ. We don't have two Christs. We don't have a Christ changed by the incarnation or the assumption of humanity. 
in the condescension, nothing changes in the Son of God. He doesn't somehow empty Himself of divine prerogatives and cast off His glory for a time or divest Himself of certain divine attributes, but rather we have the union of two natures in the one Christ. Here are some helpful quotes from uh, the early church with regards to this particular rule. When anything lowly is said of Him, conjoined as He is with the flesh, there is no disparagement of the Godhead in what is said, the economy admitting the expression. So what he's saying is when we have these lowly sayings like Christ wept, Christ ate, Christ wearied, Christ was tired, these sorts of things, we're to understand that with regards to the economy of redemption, specifically the assumption of humanity. It is Christ according to his humanity who wept, it is Christ according to his humanity who ate, who drank, who slept, and who was weary. Attributing to the deity the higher and diviner expressions and the lower and more human to him who for us men was the second Adam. That's Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, the first one was Christostom. I'm not sure if I said that. But we attribute to the deity the higher and diviner expressions and to the humanity we attribute those lower and human expressions uh, because it is Christ who assumed our humanity as the second Adam. John of Damascus wrote, Those texts, then, that are sublime must be assigned to the divine nature, and those that are humble must be ascribed to the human nature. And then Leontius, To put it briefly, we know that whole troops of souls have been snatched and pulled under water because they stumbled in their ignorance over the lowly sayings and notions of Christ our God, which come from his condescension. An example of this, in, uh, in, the, gospel of, of, uh, in the gospel accounts, we have the Lord Jesus Christ um, saying things like, the Father is greater than I. Uh, we have him saying things like, no one knows the day or hour, not even the Son. So No one knows the day or hour except the Father, not even the Son. Well, we need to have an interpretive rule because Christ isn't ignorant according to his divinity. That would be madness and that would be heresy. We need to understand these realities that there are lowly sayings and notions of Christ our God which come from his condescension. So when he confesses ignorance on a topic and not a sinful ignorance, it's an ignorance according to his assumed humanity because God, the Son of God according to his divinity, knows all things. When he says the Father is greater than I, he's speaking with respect to his assumed humanity as the mediator between God and man who is exercising redemption. According to his deity, he is equal with the Father, and he confesses that as Pastor Butler has been working through the Gospel of John, we see that time and time again where Jesus asserts his essential deity that he is God, but also his equality with the Father because of that essential deity. So we need to understand that when we come across sayings in the Scriptures, we're not to be snatched and pulled underwater in our ignorance, not appreciating the fact that there are those things that speak of Christ according to His divinity, and then these lower sayings that speak with, of Christ regarding to His assumed humanity. Lastly, under important interpretive rules in Christology, not that we're exhausting them, uh, but lastly, the wholesome use of extra-biblical words and phrases. 
The, the wholesome use of extra-biblical words and phrases. We use those. It, if we couldn't use those, if using them were ba- was bad, we would never preach from a pulpit because, because we would just have to simply uh, rehearse the words of the Bible, which would be great. We read the Bible in worship, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a wonderful liturgical element of our, uh, of our congregational worship, but the call of God and the commandment of God is to preach the Word. And so in preaching, God, by the Spirit, assumes and helps us with, assumes that we will use and helps us with the use of extra-biblical words and phrases in order to, by the Spirit, articulate the things that the Word contains and expresses to us. There, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting account. I, I, I don't know the specifics and I don't have the words verbatim, but um, in the, the, the early church, uh, Alexander of Alexandria and Athanasius were at the Nicene Council when they were defending the, the Trinity and the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his full deity, his consubstantiality, or he, that he is of one substance with the Father. And initially, they were, they were working through the Scriptures, arguing for, of course, from the Scriptures, arguing for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Arian party uh, loved that and were you know, elbow, elbowing each other and snickering um, because they were simply answering by the same verses and by the Bible. That is, that is when they, the Nicene heroes, understood that they needed to capture what the Word proclaims in words and phrases in order to defend that which the Word proclaims. Sorry, you probably saw with the sun something coming out of my mouth there. We'll edit that later. Um, but... Uh, but um, the use of extra-biblical words and phrases, it's absolutely vital, and the, the Bible expects that we're going to use those. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We need to employ words in, in our God-blessed human language to, to defend, to proclaim, to propagate the blessed truth of the Bible. So that's, that's important to understand as well, the wholesome use of extra-biblical words and phrases. So let's now move on then to the importance of Christology. And I have seven, seven points here, the, the, the number of perfection, because it is a topic concerning Christ Jesus the Lord. So the importance of Christology. First off, the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that Christ is the scope of Scripture. That is, He is the target, the aim, the, the trajectory or terminus of the Old Covenant and New Covenant documents. He's the scope of Scripture. He is that one to which the Scripture points. We see this at the outset of divine revelation in Genesis. The, the commentary uh, or the narrative with respect to Adam isn't first and foremost about Adam. It's about Christ. Because Adam is typologically the first Adam who points forward to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get very quickly to the point of the Bible in chapter 3. The hero born of woman who will crush the serpent with his heel. And so from there, the biblical revelation moves and rolls rolls along in a Christward trajectory until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where we have that revelation uh, summing up and, and wrapping up the blessed story of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who gives himself for guilty sinners. And so the scope of Scripture 
is Christ. Its target, its center, its aim, the aim of divine revelation is Christ. This is Nehemiah Cox, one of our particular Baptist forefathers. In all our search after the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. It's a wonderful statement. In all our search after the mind of God in our Bibles, we're to manage our inquiries with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're Christians on this side of the New Testament. Not that those on the other side of the New Testament weren't operating according to Christ because they had the messianic prophecies, they had the expectation of that hero born of woman, but as we are here in 2023 and as, all, as Christians always have been, the scope of the scriptures is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read our Bibles, we're reading with Christ in, in mind. And we are to study Christology and read our Bibles at, at the topic of the Lord Jesus Christ with him in mind. Uh, and uh, study, study the Bible, uh, you know, when we come to the, the, the book of Esther, when we come to, well, it, we'll notice this morning, when we come to the book of Psalms, um, we're not to read the Psalms in a Christless fashion, as if because he hadn't come yet, we're to just understand the Psalms in a in, in some sort of physical and provisional way and not with respect to the Christ to whom those psalms point and in large part uh, to whom uh, or of whom those psalms are about. So the scope of Scripture, the importance of Christology is seen first in that Christ is the scope of Scripture. And some passages that, some passages that set that forth, you can make a note of some of them, Luke 18, 31 to 34, John 5, 39 and 46 to 47, um, Acts 3, 18 to 26, and you can turn with me to Acts 26 for a moment, Acts chapter 26. There we have a statement that respects the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it sets forth the reality that the Bible itself, the Scriptures, are about him. In Acts 26, uh, notice at verse... Uh, well, let's see here. We'll go to verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Isn't that a wonderful statement? The Apostle Paul isn't proclaiming new things as he goes about the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming old things, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would come into the world and redeem his people. So the, the scope of Scripture is Christ, and that sets forth the importance of a study of him. You can also... Make a note of Luke 24, uh, 25 to 27, and Luke 24, 44 to 45, where Christ says um, the, 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 uh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all spoke concerning me. Secondly, the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that eternal life is connected to our knowledge of Christ. Eternal life is connected to our knowledge of Christ. You can turn to John 17 for a moment. 
John 17. And when you get there, verse 3. John 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The importance there of knowledge is emphasized by Jesus Christ Himself. Eternal life is connected to the knowledge of God and Christ, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, of course, there praying according to His assumed humanity. Eternal life is connected to our knowledge of Christ, His essential deity. We would want to note, first off, our knowledge of Christ. What is contained in that knowledge of Christ? Um, Remember that Christ says, if you do not believe that I am, in all caps, connecting to Exodus 3.14 and Isaiah 10, if you do not say that I am, you will die in your sins. So the knowledge of Christ with respect to His essential deity is absolutely vital. And connected to that, the knowledge of Christ with respect to His equality with the Father. Um, If we reject Christ's equality with the Father, we have a defective and low Christology. And we're not in a good place, historically speaking, because everyone else who has done that is a heretic. Arius, Eunomius, uh, closer to us, Sosinus, who uh, the Reformers dealt with, and Biddle and Best, to name a couple in England, who rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, and all argued for some sort of subordination of the Son eternally. The Scriptures reject that and uphold the eternal equality of the Son with the Father. His relation to the Father, connected to His essential deity, is absolutely vital. The Bible sets forth the doctrine that the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. That language often kind of rubs against people the wrong way. Well, the language of begotten, doesn't that mean that He was sort of you know, brought forth in time? No, because He's eternally begotten. The relation of the Son to the Father is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The relation of the Father to the Son is that He eternally begets the Son. But it's eternal. It's, it do, there's no point in time where that starts, and there's no point in time where that ends. His relation to the Father um, is such that He is eternally generated or eternally begotten from the Father. He comes forth from the Father eternally is equal with Him and is of the same substance with Him. So, His essential deity and then subsumed under that topic, His equality with the Father and His relation to the Father. Uh, We use the word filiation, which just contains the language of sonship or son. And He is son such because He is eternally begotten of the Father. We can make a note of Proverbs 8, Psalm 2, uh, and then, of course, John 1, 14 to 18, where the language only begotten Son is used uh, twice. Also, His humanity. We're talking about eternal life connected to our knowledge of Christ. Vital, as we've already noted, to our understanding of Christ as His essential deity. Also vital with our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is His assumed humanity, His true humanity. He did not just come into this lower world as a phantom looking like man. He didn't only just assume a body in coming in the incarnation, but rather body and a reasonable or rational soul. 
Uh, you can turn to the book of Hebrews for a moment as we see some biblical witness to the true humanity of Christ, but were we to, were we to go to every part in the Bible, we'd be here until the Lord Christ comes again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. There we have wonderful language with regards to the, the incarnation, the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 14, "...inasmuch then as the children have, uh, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage." For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. We could also render that he does not take on the nature of angels, but he does take on the nature of the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you see the language there of Christ's true humanity. He takes on the nature of the seed of Abraham. He becomes like his brethren, or he's made like his brethren. And the, this language here, that he might be, is absolutely glorious. He takes on the nature of our humanity without sin, that he might be our Savior and save us from our sins and give us that blessed righteousness. And so the the confession of the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely vital for our understanding of Christ. Um, the, the Apostle John, in his epistles, uh, remember, uses the language of antichrist with regards to those who reject the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not say, or, or antichrist is he who says that Christ has not come in the flesh. And so that, that spirit of Antichrist, we're, we're not to anticipate you know, some future political uh, opposer of the church who rises up in the Middle East. It was simply a first century heresy that rejected the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Antichrist. Um, so true humanity, on this particular point, we want to note that Christ has a body and a reasonable soul, as I already mentioned. Uh, ancient heresies uh, assumed that he only took on a body and he did not take on a reasonable soul. So that um, if that was the case, humanity then is only, or the elect, sinners, are only half saved because our bodies are redeemed. But what about our soul? Um, and so on that point, this is Augustine, or not Augustine, <laughs> uh, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. If anyone has put his trust in Christ as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of the nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole." Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. So Gregory of Nazianzus is uh, opposing uh, uh, people who were called Apollinarians. 
They, they were followers uh, of Apollinaris, who, was, who proposed that Christ, in the incarnation or in the assumption of humanity, only assumed a human body, only took on flesh, that he wore, as it were, a flesh suit without an actual human mind assumed also. The Bible upholds that Christ took uh, on true humanity, body, and, and a reasonable soul. As the confession says, all the essential properties and common infirmities of humanity, yet without sin. Augustine writes, Let us not hearken to such as say that only a human body was assumed by the word of God. We also want to note on the, port, uh, we also want to note on the point of Christ and his true humanity uh, that it's not a humanity added, it's not a humanity by subtraction, and it's, uh, it is rather a, humani- uh, a humanity by assumption. So not by addition, not by subtraction, but by assumption. Assumption means taking to oneself. Uh, the language of the confession uh, is such, that he took to himself man's nature. He assumed man's nature. The language of the Bible is such as well, in the taking on of flesh. Uh, and and, um, uh, and those, uh, those verses uh, of like language. So, not by addition. He didn't add humanity to himself. Unfortunately, there are those, even within our own, good men, uh, even within uh, our own Reformed tradition who use that language. That, but the, uh, the um, language of the fathers and the language of our Reformers that followed after them explicitly reject the language of addition. Nothing can be added to God. God is perfect. He does not lack anything that he needs to somehow be augmented by something else. Nothing can be added to God, but God, the Son of God, can assume, he can take to himself or uh, take to himself man's nature. Um, and we, we, we may, well, maybe we'll talk about it later. There's important language with regards to assumption uh, that we need to use, um, and we'll get to that when we get to the incarnation. But this is what Dolezal writes regarding uh, the assumption of humanity. This instance that the word was made man without undergoing any change in himself is most agreeable to the core claims of classical theism, classical Christian theology, including divine, pure actuality, simplicity, uh, impassibility, and timelessness. In other words, um, if Christ somehow adds to himself or if Christ somehow subtracts from himself, that impacts the doctrine of God. One uh, of the most important uh, perfections that uh, are touching upon this would be immutability. Divine eternality and immutability. God cannot change. Therefore, of course, uh, the Son of God, uh, one with the Father and Spirit, cannot change and does not change in the incarnation. More, uh, more on that as we move through the study. And then thirdly, with respect to the humanity and the importance of it, uh, the unity of his person. Uh, he is one person, not two persons. Um, he's not the Son of God and then the Son of Man as two persons going about, uh, going about doing good, saving man, and then uh, you know, one dying and rising. However that would work, it doesn't work because it's madness and heresy. Uh, the unity of the person of Christ is of the utmost importance. He is one person, the Son of God, who took to himself man's nature. He did not assume a human person, 
uh, but rather he provides in the act of assumption the personhood of the assumed humanity. I know that's a mouthful, but if he takes to himself a human person, then we're not saved by a divine savior, we're simply saved by the human person assumed. But if the Son of God, very God of very God, takes to himself or assumes human nature, then we have the person of the Son of God incarnate doing the perfection of saving work. Uh, Thirdly, under the importance of uh, Christology, it's seen in the fact that the gospel is about Christ. The importance of Christology is seen in that the gospel is about Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1-4. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It's about his life, death, and resurrection. So the importance of the doctrine of Christ, or Christology, is seen in that Christ is, the gospel is, about Christ. Um, remember that the, you know, the gospel isn't a lot of things. The gospel isn't our feelings about Christ. The gospel, uh, the gospel, isn't, uh, the gospel isn't even believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the blessed summons that comes upon the heels of the gospel proclaimed. The gospel is that Christ lived, died, and rose again substitutionarily for sinners. And so we need to understand what the gospel is and and what it isn't. Um, So the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that the gospel is about Christ. Fourth, the importance of Christology or the study of Christ is seen in the fact that Christ alone is the only way of, of salvation. Doesn't this, doesn't this uh, um, exclamate, doesn't this highlight, doesn't this emphasize the importance of Christology that the one studied, the blessed topic of Christology is the only way of salvation. We could think of a, a number of passages, uh, John, uh, Acts 4.12, where Peter confesses that there is only one name given among men under heaven by which we might be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ himself, no one can come to the Father uh, except by me. The one who is the the, the way, the truth, and the life. He is uh, the only way of salvation. Acts chapter 16, of course, in the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? The answer doesn't come, well, you know, work your way to heaven. Do this, do that. Check these boxes of obedience to to the law of God and you will be saved. No, the answer comes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So the absolute importance and, and weightiness and heaviness and highness of the study of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen here also in that he is the only way of salvation. Uh, Fifthly, the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that all redemptive benefits are in Christ Jesus. So, you know, we think of our election. We're we're chosen in Him. 
we think of our regeneration, receiving that fleshly heart, the stone of heart, this stony heart removed, that fleshly heart put in by amazing and victorious grace, our being made alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're made alive in Christ Jesus by virtue of the perfection of His work. We are justified in Him. We are adopted in Him. We are sanctified in Him. And we are glorified in Him. In fact, that language of in Him, if you, if you go to your Bibles later and you read Ephesians chapter 1, and read the amount of times that it says in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Christ. There's a, the, the, the blessed reality that all our redemptive benefits are in Christ Jesus and by virtue of our union with Him. So, in fact, prior to this, we have the work itself. Um, we have the, the, the work itself, the actual life uh, of obedience to the law of God perfectly rendered in the stead of all who believe. His substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross wherein He perfectly secures the multitude of a, um, uh, that no man can number. Um, his resurrection and His exaltation and His current session where He ever lives to intercede for us. That is exclusively, of course, Christ. And then that work which uh, accrues to us by virtue of the perfection of His saving work. All of those saving, saving benefits. Election, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, our final glorification. Those are all in Christ Jesus. And so the study of Christ is a very important and a very blessed thing. What a glorious one we have in our precious Savior. Sixthly, the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that the church's commission is given by Christ and is about Christ. So the church's commission is given by Christ and it's about Christ. It's an interesting thing in Matthew chapter 28 where Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And the, the command goes and the commission goes and the content is all that I have taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So the commission itself is given by Christ. And we see the preaching that follows is about Christ. What, what are some of the things that the Apostle Paul says? I was determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We, they go about preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts 5.42, um, 1 Corinthians 1.23, true wisdom is seen in the proclamation of the cross. Uh, Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the early church, or in the early uh, record of baptism, Christ says bap um, Christ, uh, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That doesn't rub against Trinitarian baptism because Christ commands uh, us to be baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but it pertains to authority. Jesus Christ, as Lord, gave the ordinance, the sacrament of baptism, and it's connected to Him. You can make a note of Romans 6, 1-6. The language of baptism is that we're buried with Christ, and as Christ was raised, so we are in that observance of baptism. It connects that, that figural language, which is literally expressed uh, in the waters of baptism, 
uh, reflects the saving reality behind it, that by virtue of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, sinners are saved, all who believe. So the commission itself, the preaching, of, uh, the preaching of the word is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism, and then the Lord's Supper. The, we have baptism in the Lord's Supper in the Protestant church as those two remaining sacraments, those two ordinances that the church is to observe. And the Lord's Supper, of course, is about Christ. It's not about us. As Pastor Butler always says, it's not a reward for our good works and for our good deeds done during the week. We are commanded to joyfully and cheerfully observe the Lord's Supper in recognition of and in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, of course, church discipline has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 18, 18 to 20. And lastly, and finally, the importance of a study of Christology is seen seventh in the fact that our abiding hope and everlasting bliss is in Christ. See the, you see the comprehensiveness, the, the, uh, the, the scope of the study of Christ and what it, what it opens up and what it includes. What a blessed topic. It's not simply one of a number of topics, but it is, as we said earlier, the scope, the aim, the target, the center of the Scriptures. The scriptures start with Christ, the hero born of woman, of the woman who will crush the, 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 the head of the serpent with his heel, and it ends with Christ, that one who is the glory of God, who is the light. Revelation ends with that glorious language, the Lamb, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the light of heaven. And so, lastly and finally, the importance of Christology is seen in the fact that our abiding hope and everlasting bliss is in Christ. Comfort and hope in this life, Philippians 4.6, 1 Peter 1.3, the blessed anticipation of the life to come, Titus 2.13, and then, of course, the eventual enjoyment of the life to come, Philippians 1.21-23. So hopefully in a, in a short period of time with an introduction to the doctrine of Christ, we can gain a, a blessed, reinvigorated appreciation for that one who is this blessed topic. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man who perfected salvation and who brings us to glory. What a blessed Savior that we have. And hopefully as we move forward, as we open up the doctrine with greater detail, uh, we will be reinvigorated in our knowledge of, of such a blessed Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you that we could study our Savior. We do pray that you would bless us as we move along in studying Christ, that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of him, uh, that you would help us by your spirit to, uh, to grow in, in greater Christian appreciation uh, for that one who came down from heaven, sinners to save. We pray that you'd go with us in worship. Do help us as we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Give us your spirit that we might worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, any, any questions about anything that we uh, worked through there? A lot, of, a lot of information, but maybe something is sticking out. Yeah? Um, if somebody said, oh, it's just semantics going with, you know, um, uh, assumptions versus reality, then yeah. how would you respond to that? Um, well, if, if, if someone was to say it's just semantics, I think one thing, one thing to say is that addition, 
Uh, addition assumes a, a sum as the result of a formula um, so that something is lacking before the arrival of the sum. Uh, so, we, you know, with regards to addition, um, that, that, assumes that, uh, that assumes that there is lack in the one who's adding to himself and he's somehow completed like a formula arriving at a sum. Whereas assumption is, um, is the taking to oneself without change uh, unto a uniting. Um, so we, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, actually I can send you something that's very helpful in explaining this, but uh, in the early church they, they opposed, uh, do, do I have the, no I don't, there's a couple of quotes I have from, uh, from Cyril Owen and that sort of a thing that talk about the language of addition. Um, but it, I, I think that's probably one of, the, one of the better arguments, that it assumes something lacking in the one to whom something is being added, so that at the end of it, there's a particular result for the one that was being added to. Nothing can be added to God, um, and so, you know, therefore, it's, it's not by addition, but, but assumption unto a uniting. Um, yes? To, to follow up on this, I, I think you're talking about the terminative assumption paper that's also published right after mm -hmm. uh, the conference yeah. last November. Yeah. And from what I recall, what he tried to emphasize is that there's a very limited historical precedent yeah. in language of addition rather than an assumption. Assumption right. is the historical word. Yeah. So if the, if the objection from some biblicists or some modern, postmodern, I should say, evangelical, yeah. is, oh, that's semantics, that's just wordplay, that's just irrelevant yeah. rhetorical sleight of hand or something like this. Yeah. The answer is, okay, well, we're in church history first because mm -hmm. you're abandoning the historical precedent like you do with everything else. Yeah. And then more to the point, um, as you said, there's other systematic considerations at play mm -hmm. where if we slaughter Christology, we're going to slaughter theology proper as yeah. a case of EFS position. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's good, thank you. And there's there's a there's an there's a you know an ancient argument that uh, obtained at the outset of Christianity with regards to uh, what are called um, accidental additions. If God if God, if the Son of God adds something to him, then that is somehow now something that he as God has. Whereas assumption is the, 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 the provision of personhood to a human nature such that it's united to him and it's not somehow an additional appendage to, to God. It's a difficult thing to it's a difficult thing to, to articulate and talk about, no doubt, but uh, I have some stuff I can send to you. No. Um, any other questions? I had a, a hard time explaining to someone uh, non-believer, um, how a sinless life in Christ Jesus was necessary for the atonement, for the forgiveness of our sins, mm -hmm. and that He is God yeah. in humanity, in humanity, in divinity. And He came back to me. So God had to die, and and I said, well, God provided mm -hmm. the lamb. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard for me to articulate to somebody like that. Oh, was it necessary for God to die? Or was it more necessary for a paschal sacrifice, a sinless life led by the humanity of Christ, mm -hmm. who died, yeah. but death could not continue to answer his question? So he died anyway. So it was very, it was very <laughs> he was circularly arguing with me yeah. on, on that one. So I, I, I did not know how to answer that. Yeah, well, the... Um, so, the I mean, the, 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 question, the answer to the question, did God die, um, 
is a qualified no. You see, our Bibles talk about um, God shedding His blood in Acts uh, in Acts chapter twenty. Um, you know, and uh, it talks about you crucifying the Lord of Glory, uh, 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 and you know, an allusion to His deity. Um, so, did God die? No, because God can't die. But the one who is God, who assumed humanity, died. And we would want to say, according to that, assumed humanity. Uh, deity can't die. Deity can't bleed. Uh, it's most pure spirit, uh, you know, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Uh, so the Son of God, who is God, who assumed humanity, died on the cross, but he died according to that assumed humanity. So God didn't die, uh, but the Son of God, who assumed our nature, died on the cross and died according to that, that nature. Um, and so that's, you know, that's sort of the answer there. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, to, to navigate and to stick handle and, and, and to argue sometimes, um, it can be, it can be difficult. But does that, does that in some part answer the question? That you I understand it. it. Yeah, okay. Because I believe. But yeah, but how, I, you, how I, you, I, you, I, I believe yeah. how it happened. Yeah. Right? I believe that, that there was no way to the Father but through Him. Yes. I believe that. Right. But to someone who does not believe, yeah. he, it, it's hard for him to wrap they said, they said, well, if God truly had planned the beginning from the end and had atonement for the fallenness of man yeah. and everything, so it's his fault. Yeah, right. it, but, but he'll fix it yeah. by himself, yeah. by his son. So somebody's got to pay the bill. And, yeah. and, 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 and so this is where I'm always with a lot of tough guys. Mm -hmm. so, because it's always about paying the bill. Yeah. Right? Who, who pays the pipe? Yeah. And I said, well, ultimately Christ pays all. Yeah. Ultimately and finally, it's it's Christ, and it is finished. Yeah, uh, right. And there's nothing more to pay. Yeah, right. And, and but this is very hard and when they when they when they say, "Well, is it really been paid if he's still alive?" Yeah, and that's the yeah, and that's the you know the power the power of the one Christ and the fact uh, of. He can never die, of course, according to his deity. But the assumed humanity, the person of the Son of God, is, is resurrected in glory. And that's a testament to the perfection of, of his saving work in providing uh, a sacrifice and a substitute for sin. Well, one of the things that you brought, you, know, you brought up, did he have to be sinless to, you know, to die for humanity? Or that's what the, the fellow was asking. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely, it's, it's man who sinned, and so we need one without sin. Uh, to, 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 well, first off, be sin for us, but even before that, to render that obedience that we did not, that Adam didn't, and, and by virtue of the fall, we did not, we need that, that sinless one. And his sinlessness, that the substitutionary sinlessness of Jesus Christ for us is according to his assumed humanity. Of course, according to his deity, he's sinless because he's God. Um, but as we said earlier, we need a human substitute uh, in order to answer for human fault and sin. And so the sinlessness of, of Christ is according to his assumed humanity that is substitutionarily given and, and offered for us. I, uh, Isaac, you had something to say. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I would imagine that when you get to chapter 8, paragraph 7, you'll have an extended yeah. and thorough conversation about the communication of idioms. Yeah. That would be helpful for us. Yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the background of this objector is uh, theodicy issues. That's, right. that's, that's my sense. Yeah, the problem of evil and God and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's making God a very small God. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where I try to argue that the God I believe in is a very big God. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, right? I mean, yeah, the, the sure. God that you are trying to understand yeah. 
has to die. Yeah. Yeah. Mine does not. Right. So, so it's yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Uh, Wim. Just a corrective assumption. I, I still prefer the, the, the mystical hypothetical of union. I think it's just more clear. The assumption has a nuance of taking on something. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it's not the intention, but. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, it has, it has uh, a two century long heritage, the language of assumption. Uh, so does hypostatical, so does the hypostatic union. Um, but the, the language of assumption is important to retain um, to reject the, the language of uh, addition and subtraction. But you're, you bring up a good point. The hypostatic union, union is essentially the result of the assumption. So the taking on of humanity, the assumption of humanity, uh, unition or the uniting is a result of that taking on of humanity. Uh, so they're two important things, assumption and then union, the, the hypostatic union. So, yeah, but good point. But the last thing is to suggest that the Aryan emperor had no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah.